Welcome to this episode of Write Stuff with me, Chris Fitzgerald. This is the first of a few episodes recorded at the brilliant Write by the Sea Festival, a writing festival which took place in the beautiful location of Kilmore Quay in County Wexford. It was a fantastic festival with big names like John Banville and Jennifer Johnston, as well as workshops and talks from writers of basically all genres of writing. It's definitely one to keep in mind for next year if you're interested in attending a really great writing festival in a beautiful location with great speakers and it was really well organised. So thanks a million to Elena and Lucy and all the team there with uh, Write by the Sea for having me to record a few of these interviews and I'm, I'm really already looking forward to next year especially if the weather is as good as it was this year and it's fitting I suppose then that this first episode from there is with Kit Deval whose latest novel The Trick to Time mostly set in Kilmorky and tells two love stories which are set years apart both involving Mona who is a traumatized woman and she comes up with a way of using dolls to provide healing to women who have suffered the loss of a child. And we talk about this in this interview, as well as her great first novel, My Name is Leon, in which she drew a lot from her professional life in the foster care system, describing the experience of a child in that system. Kit is also an advocate for protest, which comes up in this discussion in the context of the housing protest taking place in Ireland. So please enjoy this interview with Kit Deval and rate and review and subscribe and... You know, keep an eye out to uh, my Twitter feed as well, which is at WriteStuffChris, and you'll see a few more updates there and a few really great interviews coming up. So uh, keep an eye out for those. Okay, thanks a million for joining me here on WriteStuff. Um, you're, we're here in Kilmore Cave, which is the setting of most of the novel, your latest novel, The Trick to Time. Uh, what's it like for you coming back here now? You said earlier that it is a bit different to the way it was in in the novel? Certainly, yes. Um, when I set the novel in Kilmore Key, I set it in the Kilmore Key of my memory. So um, it was there was lots of things that are here now that I don't remember being there. They might have been there, but I was too young to realise. But I don't remember the car park. I remember just sort of walking down onto the sand from a lane. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic to be here. When I wrote the novel... I, as I say, I wrote it from my memories of Kilmore Key. And then when I'd finished it, I wanted to come back and see if I'd done it right and if I had the right memories and was that house there. And of course, it was completely different. And when the novel came out, I remember thinking, oh God, I'm going to have loads of people writing to me saying, oh, you can't get to there from there, or that's a longer walk than you said. But so far, nobody's wrote to me to say, I haven't got it right. Artistic license, you know, you can Artistic get away with these license. things. <laughs> there is one house that I mentioned specifically in the book, which is Bridie O'Connor's house. And in the book, and in my memory, there was a white house by the beach, and it was grand, uh, and it was posher than the other houses, and it was a bit tidier than the other houses. And I mentioned this house specifically in the book as belonging to a woman who is herself a bit posh and a bit precise. And then when I came back and I saw the actual house that I'd sort of half remembered, you know, it's tiny. It's just a little cottage. Yeah. Is the whole town a bit smaller, I wonder? Or is it just that? Or is it your um, estimation of that To be house, honest, the, the whole town now is bigger than the town that I remember. I remember sort of eight houses or ten houses because I was so fixated on the sea um, and on the dunes which that's that was my abiding memory um, there's certainly far more um, houses here than I ever remember mm. okay interesting right and, and yeah. this community centre was yeah. certainly not here okay 
And so coming here now as a writer and I mean, coming into this community and you're you're doing an awful lot of uh, public speaking now as well. Yes. This, this side of your writing career. Do you like that? Do you like the kind of the public aspect of it? I do. I like meeting people. Mm. Um, I love it when people say, you know, this is my favourite part of the book or mm. I cried in that. I mean, I love it when people say they cried. I'm just like, oh my God, what a result. Or so people say, I laughed, you know, yeah. if I laughed and I cried, I'm like, yeah, I've, yeah. I've done it. Um, and certainly in the trick to time, I've had a few women come up to me who have had traumatic births. And that's really, I mean, it's terrible. But it's really gratifying because they say things like, I'm so glad you're talking about something that people don't talk about. I'm so glad that um, my experience is being talked about. And it's the same with um, My Name is Leon, when people come up to me who have been in care, or mothers who have lost their children to adoption, and they say, yep, that's what it's like. I mean, that, there's nothing better than that. And you'd never hear it if you didn't get out amongst your readers. Yeah. You know, you just wouldn't hear the effect that you have on people. The, for, for me, reading both of those novels was educational as well as entertaining. You know, I learned a lot, a lot about the foster care system by reading My Name is Leon and the trauma of a stillbirth for both a woman and a man, and especially for a woman who never has another child. I mean, it, is that part of your purpose, writing these? Is, are you trying to educate people about these experiences as well? No, I have to say, I never have that in my mind. Um, what I feel when I write a novel is that I want it to be true. The first overwhelming feeling for me is, let this be true, let this be right. Feeling-wise, I mean, facts-wise, like whether that road's there or not, I don't care about. But the feeling-wise, I want it to be an authentic experience. Then... My next controlling feeling is that I want the book to be worth people's time. I really want people to think at the end of what is a long investment of hours, I've, I've got my money's worth, you know, okay, it's taken me six hours, but I haven't wasted those six hours. There's nothing worse, as any reader will tell you, when you've read a book that's six hours and you just think, what a waste of time. I could have stared out of the window for six hours and it would have been more worthwhile. I hate that. So I always have that in my mind that people have got to feel that they've been on some kind of journey. I don't really like that sort of phrase of educating mm. people because it almost feels yeah, like you know more. Yeah. yeah, you know yeah. more than them and you know, read this and you'll be wi as wise as me. Okay, yeah, you know, okay, I hate yeah, that yeah, that yeah. sort of feeling, but I do want people to think I've got under the skin mm. of somebody. But I mean, that, that kind of learning that you can get from fiction can be far more powerful than reading something that's non-fiction. Like totally. I, I felt like I was inside the system yeah. you know, by reading My Name is Leon. So that effect is a bit more profound than yes, reading something that can be non-fiction. I non think so, you know? because I think, you know, if you do, let's say you read about a nine-year-old boy in the care system, what you normally get are facts so Leon is nine, he lived with his mother, then he went into foster care, he was there for 60 days, then he moved. You know, that's how you get that information delivered to you, really factual, without emotion, even if it's a court case that you're reading about. But I think one of the beauties of fiction is that you get under the skin and you imagine what that boy's thinking and you imagine what that boy's saying to himself about his loss and feeling about his loss. So fiction is almost truer, in a way, than the facts. The facts just deliver you cold, 
unemotional stuff. It's it's almost like saying, well, twenty seven migrants died in that when that boat capsized, mm. and it's okay. That's, that's yeah. terrible. Mm. Yeah, it's terrible, mm. of course. But it's twenty seven people died. What you really want is one person died. Here is that person. Here the is that person's dreams. Or, yeah. or that, that little boy on mm. the beach. When you see the little boy on the beach who is one person, that's far more powerful than the news headline of 27 people died, 300 people have died this month, 2,000 people died this year. They, that stops meaning anything. But when you get to one person died... And this is who he was, and this is where he lived, and this is his name, and this is his photo, and here's his mom. Mm. Then it kicks you in the gut, mm. and that's what fiction does. And you're providing that, but like you say, you're also providing some kind of healing, I think, which in a way, it seems like Mona's, um, she's providing healing in a creative way using dolls, kind of analogous to what you might be doing as well using these stories. Yeah, I, I never think of that really. Yeah. Um, I don't think about healing people. Because I don't think I've got the ability. But though, I, I mean, those women who have had those experiences and have read about them now, there might be some healing from... Yeah, healing. I think in some ways, just having your story acknowledged, it goes some way mm. to healing, you know, to, to, for you to think to yourself, someone said it out loud that this happened. If you think about the uh, laundry scandal in Ireland, it's almost impossible to heal that. It's too big... It's too terrible. But just by saying this happened is, is acknowledging the pain and that goes some way to healing it. And I think maybe with my books, just saying that happened, that happened to people that had a stillbirth, that happened to children that go into care, even if there's no other explanation with it, there's no therapy with it, but just saying here it is, it did happen, that can sometimes help people come to terms with um, pain and trauma. Yeah. And the dolls, uh, where did that come from? Because it also comes up in a more minor way, maybe in My Name is Leon. Mr. Devlin has the doll's head. Yes. Um, where does that idea come from, using the dolls? And was there a connection between... Do you know, honestly, I wish I could tell you where it came from. Yeah. I have no idea. Um, it just cropped up in the book and it cropped up... Because I thought, uh, because I'd already sort of half investigated it with um, Mr. Devlin, he made a very particular head of the children he knew. And it wasn't a way of healing for him, it was a way of remembering, which I suppose happens to Mona as well. Um, but when I was selling the foreign rights to the Trick to Time, um, I had to meet with the person that sells the foreign rights and, and the person says they then go on to try and sell the foreign rights to foreign publishers. So they have to understand the book in order to, to do that. So um, I met with the person that was selling the foreign rights and they said, right, I know people are going to ask me, so would you tell me where I can find a link to the doll therapy? I said... There is no link to the doll therapy. I've made it up. It's complete, I, I would have thought that no, there was no, some... No. What? No, okay. it's completely invented by me. Okay, uh, and is it I going know, somewhere in the real no, world now? I wonder. I don't know. I mean, I, I just said, oh, no. I said, no, there, there isn't any doll okay. therapy. And she, he said, no, no, I mean the doll therapy in the book. I said, there's no... It's made up. There's no such thing. I made it up. Okay. <laughs> Even more impressive. And <laughs> she, she could not believe it. She could not believe that I'd, I'd invented it. And yeah, I'm kind of shocked about it now. Yeah, well. no, yeah, I, I really did. Yeah. I, I really invented it yeah. for the book. 
I really hope someone does it. Yeah. You know, it would be great if yeah. people who had lost children do have something like that. But mm. no, I invented it. It's when I say I invented it, I don't feel like I invented it. Maybe there's some tribe somewhere that does something similar, but mm. I don't know of anything. Okay, amazing. You put it out there now. It could be something that could be effective. Could I, be really I think so. I yeah. hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to ask a long question now, so you can take a sip from your wine. Okay. <laughs> um, you have a lecture about the art of trespass. I mean, that's the kind of the the central point of the lecture, anyway. And that's um, taken from Virginia Woolf. A quote from Virginia yes. Woolf about the writer and the reader need to trespass into other people's lives. And I wonder, comparing my name is Leon and the trick to time. Are you doing a bit more trespassing with the trick to time? Because I know like your experience and your, your work background um, really influenced My Name is Leon a bit, but was there a bit more, th- your experience might not have fed so much into the trick to time? Um, you, is there a bit more trespassing it, going on, I wonder? No, there's, there's, I mean, there's definitely trespassing going on. I've yeah. never had a stillbirth, yeah. um, but I have been, I am an immigrant. I know what that feels like to be. Um, living in an immigrant community, which certainly Mona does when she comes to England. I certainly know about the Irish sensibility and how that feels. Um, We're more or less the same age, so she's 59, I'm 58. I was 57 when I wrote it, 56 maybe. Um, I have lost children, though not to stillbirth. um, And I haven't got birth children, so I think possibly there's certainly some sense of loss there that I can identify with that Mona had and I'm also single so Mona having that sense of you know the door's about to shut on my love life I've got to go and find somebody um I wouldn't say I feel like that but I definitely feel the slow or should I say the gathering momentum of the hands of time definitely right Interesting. So to get into the, the actual writing of it then, because there are kind of two love stories going on yes. throughout the book, but both involving Mona yes. and happening at two very different times. How did the process of writing both of those happen? Were you writing them simultaneously and do they or were they written in the same order that we read them in the book? Or Definitely. did you write one at a time? So I started off writing them together. So I would write some of the history and some of the backstory and I'd write some of the present day narrative. Um, I did maybe half of it like that and then I really had to detach, I had to separate them and write them as two completely separate stories. Um, And that then became a real exercise in where am I? What am I saying about this? And, And what resonance can it have? You know, what resonance can what's happening in the past for Mona have with what's happening in the present so I wrote them sort of separately and then you sort of splice them and try and make something that happened in her past have an impact on what's happening in the present day narrative it was the most joyful thing yeah it was almost like building a house you know I felt like I was laying bricks or scaffolding that I was hanging other things on it was great I think you need a certain temper temperament for that like yeah. that would be torture for a lot of people that interweaving and that kind of intricacy oh but I you, you like that really? okay. I <laughs> loved it it was just great it's, I mean obviously it's got major challenges yeah. in it because you are always trying to second guess what the reader might know mm. and what the reader might need to know and you want to give the reader enough 
so that they can continue to read, but not so much that you're spoiling any surprise. Mm. Right. Um, so just to, to talk about something that's current, and we're not going to mention Brexit, don't worry, but you've contributed to um, a collection of stories about protest or yes. an anthology of stories about protest. Yes. And I'm not sure if you seen what's happening in the news in Ireland now about um, the protests happening about the housing crisis and people are uh, taking over buildings and um, buildings that are government owned and this is their form of protest and some people are saying that that is an invalid form of protest because it's illegal and there are other people saying this is what we've been doing for centuries occupying spaces and as a form of protest what would be your take on that are you uh, are you are you a proponent of any type of protest or I used to be much more moderate. I used mm. to be... Um, I don't think I'd... I mean, I'd, I'd certainly sanction breaking the law if the law's shit. I mean, yeah, I don't give a damn about the law. And I think almost, if it's not breaking the law, it's barely protest. I mean, that's sort of my view on it. Since Brexit and since Trump and since the rise of fascism and Nazism, I would say the gloves are off. And whatever you have to do, uh, obviously not advocating violence, but whatever you have to... If you have to occupy a government building, occupy the government building. If you have to do more than you would have done five years ago to make the same point, then do more. Because the world is in a position where keeping the rules when the rules are bad is not a good form of... It's, it's not a good way to live. And you'll certainly never make your protest heard unless you break the rules, um, be visible, make it painful for the other side, make it so painful that people have to listen. You know, I saw the other day um, with the Kavanaugh um, trial yeah, in America, yeah. and this really quite moderate Republican was... Um, doorstepped by two women. I don't know if you saw it on the television. So, I did, yeah, on his way into yeah, the hearing. So yeah, he's in yeah. a lift, and mm-hmm. these two women um, stop him going anywhere, mm-hmm. and they, the cameras are all there, and they said to him, are you seriously going to vote into power, into, into the Supreme Court, this, this guy who is so bad to women? And it's really uncomfortable. It, you know, he's a moderate guy. He was trying to do the best thing, and these women were angry and they were upset. And it was certainly, you know, not a nice scene in lots of ways, and in other ways, a fantastic scene. That's a form of protest. They've interrupted him. It's uncomfortable for him. It's not nice viewing. And they're just saying, answer the question, are you going to do this? That's a, you know, it's a really personal upfront protest. And I completely condone that kind of, uh, you know, uncomfortable behavior and if they had to break the law so much the better yeah i would never advocate violence against Mm. anybody i think you have to stop short of violence and then even with the rider i would say that if i lived in palestine i would be a violent person so i I have the luxury of saying don't be violent Mm, if someone had attacked and killed my children i wouldn't answer for my behavior and i would be violent i'm quite sure yeah Desperate measures. Yes. Um, yeah. So finally, then, Kate, thanks a million for talking to me. But you, I was really delighted to hear that you are elaborating more on some of the characters that are in both of the novels. 
yes. and you're making a collection of short stories about their kind of backstories. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the characters that you've chosen to develop more? Okay, so um, from the trick to time, I have written a short story about Pestilence, who appears in the book, and she's quite vinegar-tongued, you know, she's quite sharp, and she's quite, on the outside, she's quite harsh, but actually she's just lovely. And it's really the story of Pestilence, is really the story about how she became that person, why she's not married, how much she loves William. Um, I love that story, I really love it. Um, and I've also written about Tom, and Tom is the person that used to work with William, who went out on the night of the bombs and got beaten up and lost an eye. And the story that I've written about him is about him, his wedding speech. So the whole short story is his wedding oh, speech okay. and what he says. Because he comes into the novel in just a very fleeting way. He kind very of comes fleeting. in and goes out. So, yeah, okay. but, but I loved him. I couldn't leave. I couldn't just... Yeah. I hadn't finished with him. And did you have his wedding just... For that example, did you have his wedding in mind when you were writing The Trick to Time? No. Okay, all right. So what I knew about Tom when I wrote The Trick to Time is that he was a country boy. Um, he came from Cork, because I know the Cork accent very well. Um, and he was soft and he was lovely. And that incident where he was attacked really changed him. And how, you know, the whole story actually starts with... Um, him making a wedding speech and he's blind so he doesn't just lose one eye he loses both of his eyes and it's about him being blind so it's lovely and I've entered yeah. it into the Wexford short story competition Brilliant. by the way okay. and, it, and it's, all, it's all in the Cork voice? It or? is all in the okay. Cork voice which I can't do and I oh, would I, if I could You had like that's one thing I wanted to ask you as well just, I, I know I said that was the last question but the voices that come across I know when you're going from when you're going from Birmingham to Ireland Yeah You have a way how do you do this, like, of getting accent without writing phonetically? I can tell yeah. where they're from. Yeah. You know, but it's not the sounds. You're doing... It's the sentence structure. It's the sentence structure. Yeah. And that's, is that difficult for you to It's produce? not difficult if you really know how they speak. Yeah. So when I was doing Pestilence, for example, I had my grandmother in my head. And so I know how her sentence structure is entirely different from an English speaker. One thing that Irish people say, for example, is um, come with me and I'll take you to the shops. Mm. So that's what an English person would say. An Irish person would say, I'll bring you. Yeah, right. And so it's making sure that those things are in there. And Irish people, obvious, on, on, honestly, so often finish a sentence with now. Yeah, right. You know, that's the last word right. that they'll say. Well, you'd never say that in, in, mm. in, you know, in an English person. Subtle things, but like we barely <coughs> notice those. But I guess when you have had that split context, they're Absolutely. a bit more visible to you. And also, I know that when I speak to my Irish relatives, I speak differently. Like just upstairs now, someone said to me, do you want one of those? And I said, that'll be grand. I'd never say that. <laughs> I'd never say that to a West Indian person. Yeah. They wouldn't understand it for a start. Yeah. Grand means extreme. Or, yeah, you know, like you were describing the house as grand Exactly, yeah. grand. So... Um, it doesn't mean what it means mm -hmm. in Irish. So I think one of the reasons it sounds authentic is just because of the, the words, the vocabulary and the sentence structure mm, okay. in both. So how far along are you with the short stories? When can we expect that? So I've probably done, it's probably going to be about 35,000 words and I've done about 20. Okay. So I've done Pestilence, I've done Tom, I've done Sylvia from My Name is Leon. Oh yeah, okay. Um, yeah. I've 
done. Sophie was a lovely character as well. She's yeah. great. I've done um, Mr. Johnson's story. Okay, He's yeah. actually narrating the eulogy for Castro, who died. So he's oh, yeah, okay, it's just the eulogy yeah, for Castro. Yeah. Um, I've done, and no one will remember this character. Leon goes to the family centre to meet his mum. And while he's waiting on a chair, he sees a little girl running up and down the corridor. Okay. And I've written her story. Okay. So, right. yeah, she's Brilliant. grown up. I can't wait to read them. Thanks a million, Kip, for talking to me. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.